The Double K Super Show, Episode 11, Catch the Nightmare. Welcome to the Double K Super Show. I'm Chris Karam, a.k.a. It Goes to Episode 11. Uh, I'm Mark on the Silver Mountain, Konzorowski. We're going to talk about a couple of albums that feature Richie Blackmore, but we're also going to talk about two other albums that are not related to Richie Blackmore. Mark, why don't you tell everybody what the four albums are, and then we'll get into them. Well, we're talking about Physical Graffiti by Led Zeppelin, Welcome to My Nightmare by Alice Cooper, solo Alice Cooper. We're talking about Richie Blackmore's Rainbow, and we're talking about Deep Purple's Come Taste the Band. And the reason that we're talking about these four particular opuses released in 1975 is because each of them in many ways represents a sea change. We're talking about 1975 as a very transitional year between the psychedelic-influenced hangover of the earlier part of the decade and the more cynical, more focused, and more commercial music of the later 70s. I believe that each of these four albums represents a very pivotal turning point in that transition, which can be heard in the grooves of each of these. What's interesting to me is that although we were both around in 1975, we didn't hear any of these albums until later. And looking back on it, it's funny how I missed out on a lot of this stuff firsthand, but by the end of the 70s, early 80s, I was starting to catch up on this stuff. And in some cases, it took me even longer. But my, you know, my tastes, are, of course, are, are known as being 70s rooted. So this, like you said, this is a pivotal year, and some, this is some great music. So why don't we just jump into it? How do you think? What do you think, Mark? Well, I think we can start with physical graffiti, which definitely does represent a sort of high watermark for Led Zeppelin in terms of both popularity, influence, and, and artistry. Definitely. And just for the record, I'm going to state that this album was released on February 24th, 1975, and it was produced by none other than Jimmy Page, who produced pretty much all the Led Zeppelin stuff. Now, for me... My favorite Led Zeppelin album is the fourth album, you know, the one with Stairway to Heaven, the one that a lot of people like. But I think this album really shows Led Zeppelin at their their best. I mean, I think it shows the range of Led Zeppelin and what they could do. Um, you know, you've got a little bit of everything here. You've got bluesy rock. You've got old-fashioned rock and roll. You've got Arabic, you know, you've got Arabic-influenced music. And what's I think what's most interesting about this is that it was cobbled together. It was partially outtakes from the previous five Led Zeppelin albums and some newly recorded stuff that they had put together over between 1974 and 1975. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, um, what's the word? A very, uh, what is that song by Dolly Parton? It's, it's a coat of many colors in many ways. <laughs> I wouldn't think to marry uh, Led Zeppelin to Dolly Parton, but uh, that's a that's a good analogy, Mark. That's a good one. Well, there is Down by the Seaside, which in some ways is the closest to country music that they ever came. And it is an album of, of motley influences. I mean, you've got yet another song with Brownie Orr in the title. You've got Boogie with Stew. You have Trample Underfoot, which is kind of like Led Zeppelin meets James Brown. You've got um, In My Time of Dying, which is an ancient ancient old blues spiritual from the 1920s, uh, very much modernized for the 70s. And you've got just flat-out, riff-tastic Zep rock that only Zep can do, talking about songs like The Rover. So this album definitely is their most diverse, their ultimate, uh, their ultimate artistic statement. Can't disagree with you on that one, Mark. Like I said, the the fourth album may be my favorite, but this one definitely, you know, like I said before, encompasses all their range. And what's interesting about it, of course, besides the music, was once again, you know, we were talking about In Through the Outdoor um, on our second episode, I believe, and the packaging. If you bought the album, especially the the record, it's this very interesting die cut cover where. You know, it says physical graffiti. The the letter each window shows one letter of the title, and then you open up the sleeves, and there are all these pictures. Some of which are 
you know, were confusing to me. Some of them are just random pictures that they they took and put, you know, posted inside the windows. And then there's pictures of the band members in drag and, you know, hanging out. And it's kind of strange. The Zeppelin always was a band that took particular care in their packaging. A lot of it is, like, pretty much random. Some of it is, you know, Jimmy Page's fascination with the occult. Some of it is in-jokes. Some of it is practical jokes. And, you know, you never know where the one leaves off and the other begins. And so there was always a great deal to, like, meditate upon, if you will. Yeah, especially when you're younger and you have more time to really just sit there with the record and, you know, look at the look at the pictures and look at the sleeves and try to figure out what it all means. One thing I thought was interesting on the second album, there's a song called Black Country Woman, which I thought was, you know, pretty kind of a bold title. I thought, wow, that's kind of, you know, in your face. But I realized now, years later, that it's 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 about a woman from the black country, not a black woman necessarily. Trying to understand Led Zeppelin, you know, you, you can listen to the music firsthand, but it takes years sometimes of reading up about these things to really understand what's going on. Yeah, Led Zeppelin were not the kind of band that dispelled things out for you. There, were, there was always a bit of mystery, a bit of intrigue. And, of course, it, it sold records, but I think it was also just their natural means of expression. They, they weren't the kind of guys that would spell things out. Right. And what's interesting also, you know, we're talking about the song Houses of the Holy is on here. But, of course, the previous album was Houses of the Holy. This is one of those situations where the title track of an album doesn't appear on the on the actual album. It, you know, surfaces later on. This isn't the first – Led Zeppelin's not the first band to have done this. No, the Doors did it with Waiting for the Sun, among others. And this – you know, obviously there's some – Really great stuff here. One of my favorite songs is the Wanton song, which is, of course, about sex. You know, no surprise, Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. And it's a very charged up song. It's got some great uh, guitar work and it's got some great organ work from uh, John Paul Jones. You know, once Led Zeppelin's secret weapon, of course. Yeah, Jonesy gets off some good, lo- some good lines in that song. And, of course, Boogie with Stew. Uh, Boogie with Stu actually features, come to think of it, um, uh, what's that guy's name? The guy who was a sideman for the Rolling Stones for years, Ian Stewart. Ian Stewart, yep. And that song was actually co-credited to Richie Valens' mother when they found out that Richie Valens had been ripped off for royalties. Yeah, I guess the Robert Plant pretty much quoted a song called Ooh My Head, and Apparently, they, the interesting thing is that it's credited to the four members of Led Zeppelin, Ian Stewart, and Mrs. Valens, which mm-hmm. I always thought was a weird credit when I first saw it. Yeah, the interesting thing, of course, about that one is that no sooner had they done so than that it opened up the floodgates, and all of a sudden the estate of Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters and a thousand others were suing them for their rightful share of royalties. <laughs> yeah. So it, it goes to show that Maybe no good deed goes unpunished. And that's the thing about Led Zeppelin. You know, I love Led Zeppelin. And, you know, as you get older and you you start hearing things, you realize, okay, yeah, they did lift this from there and they did take that from there. But I still love them. I still love this record. Because they've been a little more conscious in crediting people and, you know, citing their influences, perhaps. Oh, yeah. But, you know, those those are the sins of the past, and a lot of it is probably just sheer negligence, not knowing that a song might not be as traditional as you assume it was. Yeah, there's, there's previous records where they just, instead of crediting someone, they just put traditional, arranged by Led Zeppelin. Yeah, Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You was a perfect example. Many, many years later, it turned out, of course, that the song had been written by a woman named Ann Braden. But it took her like 40 years to find out that anyone had actually covered the song. So again, you know, it's it's a bit of like negligence and possible to sheer misunderstanding. Right. Yeah, I noticed a lot of uh, lawsuits for Led Zeppelin songs, whether they were lyrics or music. 
tended to happen after the fact. And back then, I tend to think, well, why'd you wait so long to sue them? You know. And I'm, yeah. I, in some cases, maybe it was because you know a lawyer was saying, hey, you know, you've got the, you've got the rights to this. You know, you should be getting some money for this. Anyhow, uh, getting back to the topic at hand, two has always been my personal Zeppelin favorite because I am partial to that sort of psychedelic sound, heavily echoed, and, you know, blues-tastic, riff-tastic. But I, I will admit that I do find physical graffiti to be their most mature artistic statement. It is them at the height of their creativity, I believe, before, you know, the personal and social and uh, substance abuse issues started to affect them in negative ways. Right. And, you know, the other thing, too, like when you realize that this album was cobbled together from previous records and this records, it has a pretty uniform sound to it. And it's very enjoyable that way. I mean, Jimmy Page and, you know, I don't know who did the mixing on this. I probably should know it. Somewhere between Andy Johns, um, Eddie Kramer, and, and Ron Nevison. Probably a combination of the three. But you're right, there, there's no problem with the volume levels from song to song. And they don't sound like they were recorded at nine different studios or years apart. So in, in that respect, yeah, it is extremely cohesive. What's interesting about this, too, as well, is that I read somewhere that John Paul Jones supposedly was going to quit the band around this time, um, you know, late 73, early 74. And he was going to join the, the Royal British Choir or something. Now, I've heard that, you know, that was just John Paul Jones being dry and not really meaning it. But, you know, who knows? Yeah, you never can tell with those guys. Physical graffiti is a definite high point in their catalog. And again, it, it does mark a transition point between, you know, the earlier, bluesier, more riffy sort of psychedelic stuff and the later, more sort of experimental, um, Arabic, Latin sounding type of music that they got into. Um, the later music is more mature. It's more worldly. It's more looking forward in many ways to the 80s. And I think that physical graffiti kind of marks the turning point between those two eras of the group. Most definitely. And I mean, obviously, you know, you were talking about the, the Arabic influence. Of course, Kashmir is the big is the big one right there. And that's a song that uh, even Robert Plant has said, as far as he's concerned, it's not Stairway to Heaven that's the definitive Led Zeppelin song. It's Kashmir, you know, about the journey. And, I, and you know, obviously this journey is both musical and, you know, actual yeah they they had definitely had some interesting experiences throughout the world and the album is definitely reflective of that um they do kind of take on around this point the persona of you know world wise and to some degree world weary travelers which uh, does kind of permeate through both presence and um in through the outdoor i would think those those records saw you know like we like you said before the the substance abuse and other things taking hold, and yet still they were still producing great music. It's just uh, unfortunate that uh, the drugs and everything overtook Led Zeppelin, you know, what and you know stuff that was going on around them. Physical graffiti definitely does find Led Zeppelin at a creative, artistic, and. Um social high point in their career and i think that 1975 probably was the height of their popularity almost oh, definitely i think when this album came out uh, when this record came out it pulled all the previous records back onto the billboard top 200 as far as i remember as far as i remember reading and at that point i think led zeppelin may have been like one of the first bands to do that where they just their back catalog just came right into it anyhow there is our case for Physical Graffiti as one of the most integral releases of this most pivotal year in the 70s. And uh, we move on from there to another um, very extremely transitional album, uh, Welcome to My Nightmare, which is not done by a band named Alice Cooper, but an individual named Alice Cooper. That's right. And this album was released on March 11th, 1975, and it was produced by Bob Ezrin. 
Yeah, as I understood it, the the demise of the Alice Cooper band, the original band, I've heard different stories that uh, some people at the label wanted Alice to go solo. They wanted him to leave the band. I've heard that certain members of the band wanted to do solo albums. And when they, I think Michael Bruce and Neil Smith, and Michael Bruce, the guitarist, and Neil Smith, the drummer. And when they did that, uh, the manager, Shep Gordon, said, well, if you guys want to do that, go ahead. But, you know, I'm backing Alice. And from that point on, it was just basically Shep and Alice going forward and, you know, <clears throat> plunging ahead in this solo venture, for this quote-unquote solo venture for Alice. It is an album that definitely marks a turning point. Previous Alice Cooper band albums had had their theatrical moments, of course, especially uh, Schools Out. But if you compare this album with the sound of the last band album, Muscle of Love, you definitely get where there was a conflict between the more theatrical leanings that Alice and Bob had versus the more basic, you know, Detroit rock and roll style that the band members had wanted to stick to. Um, Welcome My Nightmare has the veneer of a rock and roll album. But in many ways, it is one of Bob Ezrin's ultimate theatrical productions. Oh, to be sure. And I'm, and if you think of, if you go back a little bit to Muscle of Love, Bob Ezrin didn't even produce that record because they presented the material to him and he didn't like he didn't think it was up to snuff. And when he said that, they said, well, we're doing it. So he ended up not producing it and went off to do something else. Now, of course, he's doing this record and. This is, you know, a Bob Ezrin album. It's almost like a, like a Bob Ezrin album featuring Alice Cooper. One of the stories I read was that Alice Cooper went on vacation with Dick Wagner, who was the guitar player on, on this record and co-wrote many of the songs. I think they were in the Bahamas or something, and they announced that there was going to be a tropical storm. And the first thing out of Alice Cooper's mouth was, welcome to my nightmare. It is interesting how you know inspiration comes from the middle of nowhere right and you know they they based this this concept album around a uh, kid named steven who's trapped in a nightmare and you know like a lot of concept albums it's kind of hard to understand in a way but it doesn't really matter when the music is so is so damn good i mean you know the title track Black Widow. I mean, one of my favorite songs on this record is Some Folks. And when I first, you know, as I listened to that song, I, I kept thinking to myself, I could picture somebody doing like a, a soft shoe routine to this or doing a little, you know, kicking up their heels and stuff. And then you watch the the concert film, Welcome to My Nightmare, and some they're doing exactly that. They've got, you know, top hats and canes and they're doing a little vaudeville thing. And as you know, as you know, Mark, part of, you know, Alice Cooper, even the original band was always a bit of it was both music and vaudeville and theatrics. Yeah, there was always a combination of. Well, what shock rock was, was a combination of basic, you know, hard rock and roll with a lot of that sort of grand guignol sort of theatricality. It was a horror show. I mean, that. That is what the glam movement was when taken to the extreme. It definitely was not, you know, the the safe kind of pixie routine that Mark Boland put across. It was definitely more, you know, hammer horror, universal monsters, and a lot of just, you know, plain morbidity. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, as with... Most Alice Cooper releases, there's a, a really good sense of humor. Um, one song that illustrates that uh, is the song Cold Ethel, which is, of course, about uh, necrophilia. But yet, I can't get upset about it because, you know, especially when he goes, she's cool in bed. Well, she ought to be because Ethel's dead. And I laugh every time I hear that. You know. Oh, yeah. He's, he's laying the groundwork for, you know, Elvira. You know, comedy with horrific element or horror with a comedic element you know and take your pick it's it's definitely not meant to be any sort of like you know serious experience right and at the same time you know parents were getting 
outraged about it. And you think about it now, compare that to say someone like, I don't know, Marilyn Manson or something like that. You know, Alice is pretty tame in, by, by comparison. Well, Alice has always been a happily married man off screen. He had his demons in the shape of, you know, alcohol and a bit of cocaine here and there. But I don't believe that Alice ever participated in any kind of, you know, sadomasochism. He's never had a sex scandal. He's never been accused of beating anybody. You know, there were, even at his most drug-addicted worst, he knew to leave Alice purposely behind on stage. He never completely became Alice in his real life. Well, I've heard, you know, the funny thing about that was that he met his wife, actually, during this the Welcome to My Nightmare tour rehearsal. She was a dancer. And, of course, you know, this was not going to be just Alice and some guys playing. This was going to be a full theatrical production. And so he met his wife, Cheryl, and they married the following year. But I had heard that part of the reason that Alice Cooper got so wrapped up in drugs and alcohol was because of the fact that he was getting too much into the character and he wasn't leaving it behind. Uh, you know, I, I think later he learned that, okay, the only place that Alice Cooper exists is on Alice Cooper exists is on stage off stage. He's, you know, Vincent Fernier. I think he was able to make a distinction between the two, but you know, of course, like any story in rock and roll, there's conflicting, you know, this, everybody tells a different side of the story. That's very true, but I think the proof of the pudding is that Alice has, you know, been on the scene for 50 years now. No Bill Cosby-type stories, no Marilyn Manson-type stories are coming out about Alice Cooper, which you certainly can't say about a lot of other people of his generation. No, that's certainly true. That's certainly very true. But musically, like I said, this album... It, for me, it's the end of Alice Cooper's golden era. Not, and that's not to say that he wouldn't make some good records after this. You know, I just think like it gets spotty after this. There's some great stuff, and then there's some not so great stuff. And you know, the the early '80s is kind of like a lost period for him. And yet, some people swear by that stuff. Yeah, the early '80s stuff is him basically spiraling out of control not really having a direction to go in. Some of it sounds like heavy metal. Some of it sounds like Devo or Adam and the Ants. He doesn't really know what he's doing. He's just listening to the radio and kind of like, you know, absorbing influences, but absorbing them backwards because he's so messed up. Whereas Welcome to My Nightmare is incredibly focused. Part of that is Bob Ezrin's influence. But a lot of that is Alice deciding what direction he's going to go in, what kind of image he wants to portray, and, you know, how he wants to take the reins now that the others aren't on the stage with him anymore. Well, the other thing, too, and it's interesting that you were referencing Eddie Kramer in the Led Zeppelin when we were talking about physical graffiti, is that, you know, obviously Bob Ezrin and Eddie Kramer also have a kiss connection, and... There's an engineer by the name of Corky Stasiak who worked on Kiss as a Destroyer and Rock and Roll Over. And basically what he said was that Bob Ezrin creates a moment and that Eddie Kramer captures a moment. You know, Bob Ezrin doesn't obviously doesn't just, you know, OK, roll roll tape, guys, and let's get it. He co-writes. He arranges. He plays piano. He gets, you know, he brings in. He brought in a lot of his studio guys who'd worked with Lou Reed, among others, to, to make this album. Yeah, Bob Ezrin, in some ways, is sort of like the prima donna producer. He almost has the album mapped out before the artist does. Whereas I think Eddie Kramer, coming from an engineering background, and also the fact that Eddie Kramer made his claim to fame working, of course, with Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix is definitely not the guy that you direct in the studio. And I think Eddie, Eddie Kramer developed his skills responding to what Jimmy needed very much in the moment. So, yeah, Eddie Kramer definitely is a reactive producer, really more of, and I don't mean this as an insult, but he's basically a glorified engineer. Whereas Bob Ezrin definitely is a producer and he's almost a director. 
And Bob Esmond was known for being uh, a martinet in the studio. I mean, you didn't, you know, you followed his lead. You did what he told you to do. On the one hand, the results are here. You know, you can hear it. How well arranged this album is, how tight this album is. And, you know, some people, you know, fans, especially the original band, didn't like the fact that Alice went solo and got too slick and got too slick for his own good. But it's a it's a great album. And the other thing, too, is that this album isn't the, the you know, the end of the Nightmare Saga. I mean, part of it kind of continued on to the next album, Alice Cooper Goes to Hell from 1976. And from what I understand, the tour for this album basically went on for a couple of years. I mean, obviously, they, they probably made some tweaks to it, you know, when Goes to Hell came out. But this album... This tour just went on and on and on, and that I think was part of the reason why Alice started to spiral out of control. It could be because you know you're right. The visuals that Alice Cooper portrays at the time of this album definitely do continue into Goes to Hell. Um, the character that he portrayed on the following album, Lace and Whiskey. I think was an attempt to sort of break away from that because that's around the time that he grows the mustache, starts dressing in the very 1930s hard-boiled detective kind of clothes. Yeah. And the music changes. It does become slicker and a bit more commercial. And, you know, like I said, those records have their moments. And the interesting thing is he'll he does a con he'll do a concept album about one of his rehab experiences that would have been a you know perfect Bob Ezrin, but Bob Ezrin didn't produce it. That's true. Bob Ezrin was probably busy producing the wall at that point. But like I said, for me it's the end of Alice Cooper's golden era, which I would say starts with um, Love It to Death and goes through this record. But you know your mileage may vary, and I think your mileage does vary. Mine pretty much goes up to Lace and Whiskey. Somewhere between uh, Goes to Hell and, and Lace and Whiskey. I really like those two following albums. Um, but yes, the music and the image do become a bit slicker, more sophisticated, more calculated. And that in itself is symptomatic of this latter half of the 70s, which is why these albums that we're discussing today are, are so pivotal because they really do mark that transition. Uh, just before we move on to the next record, I just wanted to say this album and tour not only was an album and a tour, but it also spawned a concert film dubbed Welcome to My Nightmare and a TV special called uh, The Nightmare, which aired on one of the major networks. I've never seen either one, unfortunately. I've heard this album a million times, but I've never actually seen the physical media associated with it. I've seen the Welcome to My Nightmare film, and it's it's interesting. You know, it's the quality is a little rough at times, as were a lot of concert films from the 70s. But it's a good it's an interesting document of the stage show. And if you get the DVD, you get to hear Alice Cooper's commentary. I have not seen the Nightmare TV special myself, but I do know that as with the Welcome to My Nightmare concert film, Vincent Price uh, is featured audio excerpts of him on the Welcome to Nightmare film, and I believe he appears in the TV special. Yeah, Vincent was kind of a jack-of-all-trades at that point. He, he appeared in a great many um, rock and roll-related um, performances. Um, the Bee Gees original film, before their appearance in Sgt. Pepper, uh, they had a TV film on the BBC called Cucumber Castle, and you will indeed see Vincent Price, although you won't see Robin, who was feuding with the brothers and not in the group at that time. Just before we go move on to Richie Blackburn, I want to say that my first exposure to Alice Cooper was on The Muppet Show in 77 or 78, and one of the songs he did was Welcome to My Nightmare. That's very true. That was probably among my first exposures. I, I have a vague, 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 vague extremely vague memory of seeing him on some kind of Grammys or People's Choice Awards special and he was with I think it was Donna Summer or was it I think you're referring to uh, Diana Ross Diana Ross 
I think it was from 1976 or 1977. That was right around the time that I first became aware of Kiss also. So, yeah, that those are among some of my very earliest memories, especially anything related to music. It's probably why I've turned out so warped as I have. Uh, you're not the only person, Mark. There's a lot of warped people in the world. If, if, if Alice Cooper and Kiss are among the things that warped you, you're doing all right. Anyhow, I think at this point we can move on to a very interesting solo debut by a certain um, man on the Silver Mountain. Yeah, you're referring to uh, the album Richie Blackmore's Rainbow, which was released August 4th, 1975. It was produced by Richie Blackmore, Martin Birch, and Ronnie James Dio. Now, as I understand it, this record started out because Richie Blackmore wanted to record a cover version of the uh, song Black Sheep of the Family by a band called, and I don't know if I'm saying this right, is it Quatermass or is it Quartermass? I know there's no R in the in the uh, name, so is it Quatermass or Quartermass? Um, according to an interview I heard quite, quite some time ago, it is Quatermass. And Quatermass, by the way, if you haven't heard the original, Quatermass were a sort of poor man's ELP. They were a trio that featured a bass, drums, and electric organ, but no guitar. Well, you're right. That is a poor man's ELP. Even even ELP had guitar. I mean, Greg Lake played bass and guitar sometimes, as I as I understand it. Now there, there's no guitar to be heard on the album, which is very interesting. They they had a, a very intriguing lineup. The only problem is that. Like a lot of groups of that time, second division, third tier groups, they had a very interesting image, a very interesting sound. They really didn't have any songs. But getting back to what I was saying before, as I understand it, Richie Blackmore wanted Deep Purple to record Black Sheep of the Family. And their response was, we write our own songs. Of course, this is coming from the band that did, you know, covered Neil Diamond and uh, among others. But anyway... Then Richie Blackmore was going to do it as a solo single. Then he was going to do it. Then it, that evolved into a solo album. And then, but he was still going to stay in Deep Purple. And then he just decided, you know what? I'm out of here. And basically took the band Elf, which was headed by Ronnie James Dio and signed to Deep Purple's record label. He took all the members of Elf except the guitar player and recorded this album. Then he spit them all out. Yeah, except Dio, of course. Richie Blackmore was no fool. Yeah, the interesting thing about that is that the two songs that make up the initial single, which are Black Sheep of the Family, the Quatermass song, and 16th Century Greensleeves, both of them are definitely among the least memorable cuts on this album. So it's interesting that they're both two commercially oriented songs they're both short they're both very much to the point and neither one of them really have a melody or a hook line to speak of true i mean when i think of this album i think of man on the silver mountain which is a great great song i mean not only is it richie blackmore declaring his independence from deep purple but you're really this is i think where ronnie james dio first became really known to the public uh, the general public i should say and also, too, if you think about it, this is where Ronnie James Dio began his uh, his career obsession with Dungeons and Dragons and fantasy, because prior to this with Elf, they really weren't doing a lot of fantasy. They were doing blues and rolling, almost Rolling Stones type rock. That's very true. The, uh, the three Elf albums. And by the way, the final, the very final Elf album, which is called Trying to Burn the Sun, is also released around this time. And the contrast between that album and later Dio albums is almost night and day. The interesting thing, however, is that a whole lot of that elf sound is indeed present on this Rainbow album. And it's the only one that that could be said about. Well, this album is a weird mixture. It's, it's almost schizophrenic in a way. You've got Richie Blackmore doing, you know, like you said, these kind of rock and roll songs that aren't very memorable. And then them going into the the fantasy part of it. Uh, for example, one of my favorite songs off this record is "The Temple of the King," and I just love the fact that it's it's kind of like this almost 
Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, I don't know, you know, what, what you call it, fantasy. And it's a wonderful song. It's it's not a, a heavy song by, by any stretch of the imagination. But I put that on a fantasy playlist that I have. And, of course, you know, with, with Rainbow and Dio, you could just do an entire playlist with just Ronnie James Dio. Because not only... Does this song, does this, not only does this album have the song Catch the Rainbow, but even before he joined this band with Alf, Ronnie James Dio was doing songs about rainbows. And he would continue to do songs about rainbows throughout his career, whether it be with, you know, maybe not Black Sabbath, but definitely when he formed his own band, Dio. Yeah, there's a lot of rainbows in Dio's career. Um, it's interesting that the song that comes immediately after Temple of the King is probably one of the most probably the most elf like song on the album if you don't like rock and roll which is a total you know honky tonk piano throwback so yeah that definitely does illustrate some of the the formative sort of formative is a kind word schizophrenic is another word you know personality of the album. It, it's it's in a whole lot of clearing out of the cobweb so to speak yeah, the Rainbow Sound would be crystallized on the next album, where it would become more progressive and more epic, uh, more heavy. Yeah, more definitely more epic, more heavy. But this album is, you know, Richie Blackmore kind of declaring his independence from Deep Purple because he wasn't happy with uh, the direction that band was going in. And you know, we were talking about this earlier in the week. You said Rainbow was never really a band, and you're and you're right. Rainbow is just basically Richie Blackmore and who he feels like working with on any given album. Yeah, I mean, there is a reason that this album is purposely titled Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. You know, the the whole point was that he felt like Glenn Hughes and Coverdale were moving Deep Purple into into too much of a funky R and B direction for his liking yeah there, there is no funk on this album that much is true there's a little too much of the sort of you know almost like early elton john sounding you know honky tonk kind of elf thing which would soon be dispersed with possibly the most memorable song up outside of man on the silver mountain on this album that really shows where blackmore wanted to go is, of course, you know, the epic-length ballad, Catch the Rainbow. And the interesting thing about that song is that it's almost a Xerox of, of Jimi Hendrix's Little Wing. Hmm, I never thought about that. I'd have, to listen, I'd have to listen to that now and see if I can hear the, uh, if I can hear that. But, yeah, well, you know, obviously, Blackmore, like anybody else, you know, takes different influences and just puts them through his blender and you know this is what comes out but you're right it's definitely an epic length song it's six minutes and 36 seconds and uh in fact there's a there's a ring one of the rainbow compilation cds is called catch the rainbow again you know you could say that that song in many ways marks the transition point for for richie blackmore in the sense that you know he is leaving He's definitely leaving Stormbreaker behind. You know, all influences of that album are definitely dispensed with. He is moving into the Dungeons and Dragons, you know, creating, helping to create the genre of heavy metal. And it's interesting that you bring, you mentioned Stormbringer, because it's it's been said that if you take the Stormbringer album, which of course has a rainbow uh, coming out of the sky and you put it alongside the Richie Blackmore's Rainbow album, that it's the same rainbow continuing forward. So, you know, the fact that this the band is called Rainbow, that the, the album is called Rainbow, and that the album cover has a rainbow, it's not a random thing. I've never thought about that, but that's very interesting. You wonder if that was like Blackmore's insistence, or was that, you know, the art director having a bit of an in-joke? You kind of wonder where that came from. Well, the other thing, too, about the reference to the song Storm, uh, the album, the song Stormbringer from Deep Purple is that that's also a reference to a Michael Moorcock hero called Elric of Melnabone. And he had a, you know, a sword called Stormbringer. And, you know, to tie this into another band, uh, Blue Oyster Cult had two songs that had 
uh, co-writes by Michael Moorcock, The Great Sun Jester and Black Blade. And on my fantasy playlist, I have the last two songs are Stormbringer by Deep Purple going into Black Blade by Blue Oyster Cult. That's an interesting combination. But it's just interesting, you know, how fantasy uh, literature or song, you know, fan, I'm sorry, it's interesting how fantasy literature permeated a lot of 70s rock. Led Zeppelin was no choice that Rush did that on Caressive Steel. And, you know, the kind of Tolkien, Moorcock um, kind of thing just, you know, really informed a lot of the this, this stuff. That was the mood of the 70s. I mean, fantasy artwork was present in every third van on the highway. Yeah, that's true. Although I'm sure back then I probably didn't, I probably just thought it looked cool and didn't really get the, you know, the symbolism. It would take me several years later to kind of get into the reading some fantasy novels and stuff like that to really understand that. But anyhow, I would say that this album is bookended on the one hand by Man on the Silver Mountain, which is the smoke on the water riff turned a little bit sideways. But it's also Ronnie James Dio's declaration of intent. And it's definitely not coincidental that now that Ronnie is gone, you know, his his crypt does have Man on the Silver Mountain emblazoned on the side of it. This is in many ways, you know, Ronnie James Dio's theme song. Well, you know, he... You look at the the uh, trajectory of his career. It's interesting how he started off in the '50s singing pop songs and doo wop and rock and roll, and then ends up being, you know, like we said, Mr. Dungeons and Dragons. You know, that's how do you go from that to that? It's definitely a very fascinating career trajectory. The uh, the other book, and of course, is Catch the Rainbow, which is, you know, the original epic rainbow ballad. It's very interesting to compare this with Soldier of Fortune, which is sort of Coverdale's ultimate ballad. And again, you know, it's semi-acoustic in nature. It's a lot more drawn out. It's a lot more realized than Soldier of Fortune was. But again, you know, it's it's quite a lot of Hendrix influence. Um, if you listen to Hendrix's original... And then Derek and Adamo's version, you can kind of split the difference between the two. I will say this, um, Blackmore does take it in a completely... He gives it just enough original flavor to claim it as his own. And it's also a song that Ronnie James Dio takes with him into his solo career. Right. And the funny thing about that is every version I've heard of this song is always sped up. You know, and that's, of course, because of, you know, adrenaline and the whole live experience. But whether it be Rainbow or Dio or I, I don't know if there's a live version out there that's performed at the proper tempo. No, that's definitely a case of, you know, 70s adrenaline and perhaps other reasons. Um, it's not another version that's as long as the studio version either. True, yeah. Dio had this habit of uh, doing these medleys, uh, and I believe that started with um, – actually, it probably started – I think it started with Rainbow, and it's something he carried forward to Black Sabbath and his own band. And at first, it's kind of interesting when he goes from you know one song to another, but then after a while, you kind of wish you could hear the whole song all the way through. But you know, back in the 70s, they liked to stretch things out and have things go on and on. You know, because it's heaven and hell. That's very true. And speaking of heaven and hell, you almost have a contrast of extreme proportions with Martin Birch as the trusty link between the two worlds. Because, of course, it's time to talk about another Martin Birch production, Come Taste the Band. Yep, and this is an album by Deep Purple. And it was released on October 10th, 1975. It's produced by Martin Birch and Deep Purple. But it's not the Deep Purple that we've come to know and love. There's a new kid in town. Right. And that kid's name is, you know, Tommy Bolin. This album really illustrates why Richie Blackmore left, because basically played they played that funky music, Purple Boys. They did. 
it is the funkiest album in the Purple Catalog. It has a hip swagger to it. But it's not completely Soul Train. Because, among other things, this is a heavy rockin' album. There really are no mellow moments. In fact, there is no Catch the Rainbow on this album. It's hip swagger street funk theme from Shaft all the way. Okay, I don't know if I'd go that far, but... (laughs) But like you know, like you said before, Coverdale, David Coverdale, the lead singer, and uh, Glenn Hughes were definitely bringing the funk element into Deep Purple, especially on the Stormbringer album. You know, that's why Richie left. And on this album, they got Tommy Bolin in because Tommy Bolin, I, I believe he, you know, he was just out of the James Gang, which you know, and of course that was a band where he'd replaced the original guitarist Joe Walsh. But uh, this album was interesting. This is an album I didn't get until you know maybe five or six years ago because i just i decided that i wanted to have kind of representation of the classic era of deep purple from you know 71 through 1975 1976 and this album was definitely interesting to listen to because like you said it's it's very funky but at the same time it's you can still tell it's deep purple the thing about this album it's it's much more And again, this is an album that perfectly illustrates the transitional point between the early 70s, harder-edged, rawer sound, and the late 70s, more commercial, more sophisticated sound. Tommy Bolin is not rough-edged in the same way that Richie Blackmore was. He's a great guitar player. He's not as fluent, and he's definitely not as classical-influenced. He doesn't do, like, you know, the fast trills and the triplets and the whammy bar abuse. Tommy Bolin plays much more in a classic American style. I mean, first of all, he's 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 a hick from the Iowa Sticks. And so his influences are much more homegrown. They're much more American. And to, to a large extent, it's almost like Deep Purple is being joined by someone along the lines of, you know, Joe Walsh or one of the guitar players in Kansas. Who, funnily enough, would end up, a guitar player from Kansas would end up being Deep Purple, but that's, we're jumping into the 90s. Well, Tommy Bolin, you know, was the first American brought into Deep Purple, and that's almost scandalous. I mean, I have to imagine that some fans, maybe some British fans or even some American fans, couldn't believe that they would let this happen. You know, how can you have Deep Purple without Richie Blackmore? And, and I'll admit, I am one of these people who tends to think, when I think of Deep Purple, I tend to think that's Richie Blackmore's group. Well, you know, the thing is, though, he wasn't forced out of Deep Purple. He left on his own accord, and, you know, he never insisted. He, he certainly didn't sue the others for continuing without him. There's also the fact that they were probably under contractual obligation to continue with or without him. Well, the interesting thing about that is John Lord back in, you know, I don't know, the 70s or the 80s said something to the effect of, with no disrespect to David or Glenn, we probably should have ended the band when Richie left. But years later, uh, when they reissued the record on CD, uh, he, I think he reexamined it and said, you know, there's some good music on there. It's it's a it's a good record. It really is. I mean, there's a lot of really memorable songs. In fact, there's definitely more memorable songs on this album than there are on Stormbringer. I'll say that. I mean, that's my personal opinion. I mean, you've got uh, Lady Luck, Dealer. You know, you've got Drifter. You've got You Keep On Moving. Those are fantastic songs, you know, with Blackmore or without. Right, and Getting Tighter is definitely the song that shows the whole funk thing. And one thing that gets get confusing to me when I first started getting to Deep Purple is when you get into the Coverdale, uh, the David Coverdale, Glenn Hughes era, you know, I used to think it was just David Coverdale who sang all the vocals, but David Coverdale is actually doing more of the bluesy stuff, and Glenn Hughes is doing the more high-pitched stuff, because he, you know, prior to Deep Purple, he'd been in a band called Trapeze, where he was the bass player and the lead vocalist, I believe. Yeah, they were both lead vocalists. Um, In fact, you can definitely tell the distinction between Coverdale and Hughes on this album more than any other. Um, Their styles are 
definitely as far apart as they would ever get. Um, proof of that is the song Coming Home, which features backing vocals by everybody except for Hughes, who apparently was uh, shunted off the rehab toward the close of the sessions and therefore wasn't around when they were when they were cutting the backing vocals for Coming Home because you don't hear the high harmony in that song. Right. And on the song Dealer, there's a point where I, I believe it's Tommy Boland singing the lead vocal because I don't recognize that as being either Glenn Hughes or David Coverdale. You're talking about that part where it says... Uh, Something about, you know, if the sparrow plays the eagle, that part. In the beginning, all you wanted, blah, blah, the mellow part. Yeah, that that is Tommy. And what's interesting, too, is that in addition to, you know, the, the kind of traditional Deep Purple sound that's still kind of there, Tommy Boland definitely brought some fusion into this band. And, and fusion by the mid-'70s, that was a, a musical form, you know, jazz rock that was starting to take hold. Yeah, Tommy Bolin, um, before he joined the James Gang, had played on an album uh, by the, a very respected uh, fusion artist called Billy Cobham. The album was called Spectrum, and that really is where uh, Tommy Bolin made his name. And what's, what you find on the album Spectrum is a lot of extremely fast-paced, very complicated fusion arrangements. Yeah, I, I think I've heard that album, but I haven't really sat down to listen to it in a long time. I definitely went through a fusion phase myself, you know, especially like stuff like Jeff Beck and Herbie Hancock. But, you know, getting back to Deep Purple, there's another interesting song on here called This Time Around. It's a very kind of epic ballad, and I'm guessing that it's Glenn Hughes singing that song. And it segues into a song called Ode to G., now, my CD that I have numbered the tracks wrong because it, it it numbers track eight as being part, you know, part A this time around, and then part B, Ode to G, whereas the CD actually breaks them up into two songs. So, you know, track eight ends up being track eight and track nine, if that makes any sense. Right. Uh, but the, it is all one piece. There, there is no segue between the two. Unlike, you know, if this, if this had been a Yes album, it would have just had the two tracks as track eight. Right. It would have had, you know, subtitle A, B, C. Um, <laughs> right. On the vinyl version, it is uh, this time around A, O, G, B. And from what I understand, the, the whole O to G thing is supposedly a reference to George Gershwin. Yeah, Tommy Boland was, was uh, trying to remember a riff that he'd heard years and years previous. And he was like just knocking around with it in the studio and John Lord heard it and said, Oh, that's Gershwin. So Bolin basically just, instead of um, transcribing it exactly as Gershwin had written it, they went ahead and, and recorded, you know, Bolin's like, you know, slightly faulty memory take of it. And so that's why it's called Ode to G. And it's the only song on the record that's not credited to anybody. It's not credited to Gershwin. It's not credited to any of the members of Deep Purple either. No, it, it's probably discredited everybody as a sort of like group improvisation. Right. And the other thing, too, that I noticed on, on previous records, I think on you know, the, the, the Mark II the maybe the Mark III records by uh, Deep Purple, I believe those songs were entirely credited to the group. On this record, however, that's not the case. You have certain members writing with outside writers, certain combinations of band members, but this is not is not presented as a unified writing effort. No, and, and John Lord only gets one credit on this album, and that's co-writing this time around with Glenn Hughes. So this is the album that John Lord and, and Ian Pace have the least to do with creatively. In some ways, this is definitely an album where the newer members of the band take precedence. It's almost a bit like Fleetwood Mac, where, you know, um, Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks enter the picture and completely change the personality of the group. That's an excellent analogy. You're right, because at this point, John Lord and Ian Pace are the only two, I believe they're the only two original members. They so, are. And, 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 you know, 
John Lord is obviously not a bass player, but he is a keyboardist, and you know, keyboard can be a rhythm instrument. Although John Lord definitely was a lead instrument in his own way. You're right. The newer members definitely take precedence, and you know, unfortunately, this would be the last Deep Purple album for quite a while because you know, like you said before, you know, um, Glenn Hughes got involved heavily involved in drugs and Tommy Boland was already heavily involved in drugs. I don't think they were quite aware of it when he joined the band. No, but they definitely became aware of it on the tour that followed, which uh, John, John Lord later had an interesting quote, basically claiming that they traveled around the world unraveling the live reputation of the group everywhere that they went. And it is true that some tapes have been released of various shows, and they definitely don't show the band hitting on all cylinders. Um, Tommy Bolin was a good fit in the studio. I don't think that his personality or his or his playing style was ever going to mesh with the older material. And so you definitely hear a, a disconnect between the two elements of the group when you hear the live recordings. Yeah, and boy, you know, Deep Purple live recordings, You, we could do several episodes on those because there's been a number of uh, archival releases over the years from all the years of Deep Purple, really. But I, I think that, for me, the most interesting time is, you know, from the beginning when they were with Rod Evans and uh, Nick Simper through here. This is where, you know, everything kind of crystallizes. Well, I mean, it begins with Mark One. Hits a peak with Mark II, coast a bit with Mark III, but still some ex- some excellent material. It ends here, but this is an album worth paying attention to. Yeah, I think for years, you know, like I said before, I, I just regarded you know Deep Purple as Richie Blackmore's group, so I, I just didn't really want to have anything to do with this. But I did pick it up, and like you say, it's definitely worth listening to. It's not an album where I would dismiss it and say this is you know garbage. There's some very good material here, and it's definitely worth listening to. But it, it's, again, to get back to the theme, it's an album that definitely is transitional. Even though there was nothing past this record, this is an album that could have been the gateway to the later 70s, you know, slightly slicker, more commercial, more, you know, tightly focused in four-minute songs. You know, in in some ways, if they'd gone a little bit slicker, a little bit more commercial, they could have ended up as sticks. <laughs> well, you know, we didn't need another sticks. We had sticks. Yeah, because I mean, from this point going forward, it just splinters off into Coverdale solo, White Snake, Pace, Ashton, and Lord, and we could go on and on. I mean, there's a there's a podcast called the Deep Purple Podcast, which explores pretty much every aspect of the band, not just the band, but, you know, solo stuff as well. So we'll let them do that. <laughs> Before we wrap this up, I wanted to, you know, we've, we already referenced the fact that both of both this album and, of course, Richie Blackwood's Rainbow were co-produced by Martin Birch. And Martin Birch passed away last year. And one of the things that was said about him is that he didn't, unlike say someone like Bob Ezrin, Bob he didn't have a he didn't have a signature sound. He tailored his approach to each band that he worked with, whether it was you know Deep Purple, Rainbow, Blue Oyster Cult, Iron Maiden, and these albums, which came out back to back, really. I mean, these came out within a few months of each other, a couple of months of each other, actually, really illustrate that. Oh yeah, there there really are not two more dissimilar albums being released by people who have connections with each other. I mean, these these are two very very different personalities. Right, and yet Martin Birch, you know, manages to somehow pull it together for each record. I would say, sound wise, "Come Taste the Band" is probably more cohesive. But on the other hand, you know, Richie Blackmore's "Rainbow" has. You know, Man on the Silver Mountain, Catch the Rainbow, um, Temple of the King. So you can't argue with either one. But, of course, you know, that would get sorted out later as far as, you know, Rainbow having a more uniform sound. But that's another episode and that's another show. Well, that 
ends our Catch the Nightmare episode in which we looked at four albums from 1975. And I want to thank Mark for coming up with the theme for this one and the four records. You're very welcome to my nightmare. And I just want to make an honorable mention of two other albums from 1975 that came out that have nothing to do with this. Kisses Alive and The Bay City Rollers, Wouldn't You Like It? Anything else you want to add to that, Mark? I think we're pretty much through here, Stephen. <laughs> Stephen! Stephen! <laughs> here we go again. Well, this ends another episode of the Double K Super Show. I'm Chris Karam. I'm Mark Kozarowski. And we'll see you in your nightmares. Thank you for listening to the Double K Super Show. If you like what you heard, please write a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Podomatic, and share us on social media. Copyright 2021, the Double K Super Show.